It's good to see you. If you haven't already done so this morning, just invite you to take a deep breath. Maybe a few. Yeah, just settle in. Is our live stream still rolling? Can you all live stream land? Is, yeah. How are y'all guys doing? At how, how are y'all doing in live stream land, everybody? Fill up the chat. I can't see or hear you, what you're saying, but <laughs> fill up the chat. Let us know how you're doing. Um, just want to give shouts to, uh, to Chris and uh, Scott McTaggart, who is not with us this morning here, but he's, he was troubleshooting and trying to, help, trying to help the live stream happen in his almost recovered from sickness kind of state at home. And so even working. So love you, brother. Miss you. Look forward to seeing you again real soon. And all y'all McTaggarts. Seeing y'all a lot this morning. It's just going to be how it is, I guess. Um, my name is Nelson, and it's good to uh, be with you. I'm one of the pastors here, and however you're joining us, uh, at home, here in person, what a gift to be with you all in person, or if you're listening to the podcast after the fact. One of uh, the favorite quotes that I discovered during the pandemic is something that the late Maya Angelou said in an interview about a decade before she passed, I think around 2002, she said, I'm grateful to be a practicing Christian. I'm always amazed when people say, I'm a Christian. I think already? <laughs> it's an ongoing process. You know, you keep trying and blowing it and trying and blowing it, right? This life of faith is a journey, it's a process, it's a pilgrimage with twists and turns and ups and downs and wildernesses, mountaintops, trying and blowing in, and getting up again and again, just keep going. It's a journey. It's also a dance, if you want another metaphor. Barbara Brown Taylor, who I just kind of call BBT, uh, said this, until someone grabs a partner and heads to the dance floor, the tango is no more than a list of steps on the wall. The same is true of faith. We've inherited a sacred pattern, a series of artful steps meant to lead us closer to God and each other. But until someone finds a partner and gives it a try, it is an idea and not a dance. It's the grace we need today to grab a partner and get out there. And don't think too literally about this, because obviously the grace we need would be pandemic ending, right? So we can do some literal partner grabbing and literal dancing, being close. I think we need all kinds of graces. We need grace in its many forms. And I think one of them is the liturgical calendar. This rich, multi-layered, story-based resource designed to help us stay the course to keep practicing. In case you missed it, last week we embarked on this new journey together, a year-long tango, a sacred pattern meant to lead us closer to God and each other, to keep us anchored in a story. <clears throat> Here's the image that our friend Zach Bulick helped to design, which kind of in, in one picture kind of gives us the whole story. The seasons of the church year on top of the image will be our sub-series, and the lectionary, which is a set of scripture texts that, uh, that weave the story of each season together, each leg of the journey, they will give us structure. And as well as a fresh sense of the ongoing narrative that's always at the center, and that is the story of Jesus. Joan Chittister said it so well, in the liturgical year, we live the life of Jesus day after day, Sunday after Sunday, until finally one day it becomes our own. 
That's why we're doing this. We want to keep living Jesus' life together. And to do that, we need to rehearse the story that offers us the grace to be practitioners of the faith we profess. Not just sideline spectators who only observe, criticize, and heckle. So today, as with the past two Sundays, we find ourselves in Epiphany Tide, or just Epiphany, and we get to settle in to a lectionary text. Let's ask for God's help, and then we'll hear the text once more together. Alexia already read it so beautifully for us. Let's pray. Spirit of Jesus, we believe that you are here. We trust that you are present with us, and we ask that you would intensify your presence with us. To open our ears, ears and our hearts and our minds, our bodies to receive all that you have for us today. In the name of Christ, amen. So Luke chapter four, let's hear that text one more time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. They began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epiphany as you might recall, means revelation or appearing, specifically the revelation of Jesus, whose name is fittingly the first word of our text this morning. You notice that language in the collect this morning, that the world may perceive, that we may come to see. That's an epiphany collect. We're meant to sort of see this the world over. And so um, in this season, the lectionary is leading us to the earliest days of Jesus' time on earth. So the season of epiphany gently yet tenaciously points us toward the light that emerges from the manger in Bethlehem and slowly dawns over the rest of the world. The first phrase in our text, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Now we're only a few chapters into Luke's gospel, but already the Spirit has got several mentions. Our text is preceded by the stories of Jesus' baptism and his temptation. And for Luke, all these episodes are Holy Spirit stories. So first we see the Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove as he prays after his baptism. Then the Spirit fills and leads Jesus into wilderness. That's a sermon in itself. The Spirit sometimes leads us into wilderness, but that's for another time. For a time of testing, and with that filling, we see Jesus reject the devil's offer of an alternative pilgrimage. He says no to the pathways of power and spectacle. And now, as Jesus returns to Galilee, the Holy Spirit will empower him to love and serve people. Now, something Luke doesn't tell us, but I often wonder about, is Jesus' mental and emotional state at that point in the story. 
So when we read a phrase like, he returned in the power of the Spirit, it's easy to picture a Jesus who's amped up and raring to go. It's possible that that was the case. We don't know how much time passed, for example, between the previous episode and this one, but I can't help thinking of what he's just lived through. Namely, 40 days without food in a hot, dry desert with the personification of evil poking and prodding and whispering sweet temptations on his shoulder. We don't know for sure what that did to Jesus, what the aftermath of that experience was. But if he was fully human, I sometimes wonder if we ought to read that phrase more like, yeah, you know, if the Spirit wasn't empowering him, there is no way he would have even made it back to Galilee. Just in the power of the Spirit, as in, he wouldn't have done it without it. Whatever he was experiencing in his body, the point still stands. Even Jesus is not self-sufficient. Whew, that's a word. He is completely dependent on the Spirit of God for life, for faith, for energy, for guidance, for clarity of focus and purpose. And here's the thing, that's us too, right? Not one of us is self-sufficient, even though we often imagine ourselves to be or live as though we are when we're fully aware that we're not in our clearer moments. And so as followers of Jesus, we're always being invited to ask, where do I need God today? There's always somewhere. What shape does my spirit dependence need to take in this season? Next part of the text. And the news about him spread through the whole countryside he was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So let's not miss here how Luke is introducing Jesus as a teacher. In this case, an itinerant one. Uh, he'd been on a synagogue tour. Podcasting wasn't an option in first century Palestine. So you actually have to go to physically travel to reach your hearers. And there was a buzz going on. People were hearing about him and hearing him. And Luke tells us, Everyone was into it. They were gripped by what they heard. Good vibes only in Galilee. For the time being, anyway. Dun, dun, dun. Tune in next week. Um, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So unless we're careful, we might miss the fact that there's more to this phrase as was his custom than just the present moment tour. Worship in a Jewish synagogue, a word that means a place of assembly, was Jesus' custom from early childhood. This is something he'd done since birth. It's what he grew up doing. And he did so in this synagogue, in Nazareth, Jesus' childhood home. So I don't know if Galilean hometown places had names, but if they did, Jesus may have played in Nazareth Park and he would have worshiped here in first synagogue of Nazareth. So imagine the scene with me. Jesus enters the familiar synagogue where he had been hundreds of times. He knows the people, he recognizes their faces. He's on a first name basis with many of them. There may even be aunts and uncles and cousins and friends who feel like family in this small local synagogue in his hometown. One commentator said, 
the ordinary day in the synagogue becomes a very extraordinary day when Jesus comes to town. Last week we talked about how the word liturgy means the work of the people. It really just refers to everything we do together in response to God's mercy. So synagogue liturgy, from what we know, ordinarily contained several elements. First would have been the recitation of the Shema, which means here. And this is an ancient text found in Deuteronomy 6, a few other places in the Hebrew scriptures. Now, this isn't part of our regular practice, but I thought it might be good for us to recite it together today. So this text will be on the screen, and I want to invite you to read it with me. Together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your forehead. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Yeah. So this is a text we often revisit when, with parents who want to dedicate their children at artisan. So it's an obvious sense of like, have this this law this revelation of god everywhere around you and so it's a good reminder a second element of the liturgy would be praying while facing jerusalem and for those prayers the biblical psalms would have almost certainly given shape to these prayers and they would have likely have been chanted or sung maybe by a cantor like jenny is our cantor this morning whether the congregation joins in or not point three there's an amen response from the gathered congregation. So often that's the rhythm. There's a cantor that sings, congregation response, responds. Four, uh, there's readings then from the sections of the scrolls of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and the prophets, followed by a sermon and a benediction. So in some respects, it's not that different from what we do. Now, who read the scrolls and preached the sermons? Well. This is a deeply patriarchal culture, so any man could either volunteer or be asked to read the section from the prophets, and any man could be asked to give the sermon. The readers were appointed before the service began, but this was no ordinary Sabbath. Jesus had come home. Jesus was in the place of assembly, and Jesus is the one who volunteers to read the section from the prophets. So he stands to read. Everyone would have been sitting on the floor, but he stands to read. There's a special platform. This is their usual practice. And he was most likely given the scroll that he requested, the scroll of Isaiah. Luke seems to imply that this was an intentional move. So he unrolls it, he finds the place, and starts to read. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's that spirit showing up again. This time quoted from the prophet Isaiah, who knew already pre-Pentecost, pre-Acts 2, in his day, that God is spirit that this God is a God who could not be contained in buildings, but instead was everywhere and always present 
and always active. Spirit sometimes anoints people and things. Why? If you grew up in certain church circles, you may have heard or maybe said the phrase yourself, there is an anointing on that person. Anyone heard that before? Said it? Like when someone is perceived to be especially skilled at something churchy, right? So singing perhaps, playing guitar or teaching, we say that person is anointed. What do we mean? Backing up, what do the scriptures teach about anointing? To anoint literally means to pour or to rub oil on a person or a thing. It's a practice that's rooted in Old Testament culture and it symbolizes various forms of special recognition shown to a bunch of things. Places like Jewish temple and its furnishings, garments get anointed, kings, religious leaders like priests and prophets, heavenly beings, or simply honored guests. So when the psalmist prays, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows, she's remembering and luxuriating in the fact that God treats her as a guest of honor. So anointing usually does two things. It, it sets a person or a thing apart. It marks them in some way as holy and sacred, and it grants authority on a person who is anointed. So biblically speaking, anointing marks as sacred and grants authority. And in the Bible, the sanctity and the authority contained in anointing are said to be conferred by God, even though the ritual itself is often mediated through someone acting on God's behalf. To put it another way, the, the most important thing isn't that a person is anointed, although that matters, but what matters more is who's doing the anointing. Who is marking another as sacred and holy? Who is calling out and giving authority? And according to Luke, it's the spirit of the living God who has chosen and anointed Jesus. It's the spirit of God who has marked, has set him apart as holy and granted him authority to do what? The spirit has anointed me, says Jesus, to proclaim good news to the poor. Not just people who are economically impoverished, although they are clearly included here, but also all who are on the fringes and the margins, people typically excluded from human companionship. Relationally poor. This is a huge theme in the first half of Luke's gospel. And this isn't the, the only time we'll see it as we journey through. Good news to the poor. He's also sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Again, not just those who are actual behind, actually behind physical bars. Jesus has been sent to those who are imprisoned by their own sin or wrongdoing, have been entrapped and harmed by the sins of others. So Jesus has been sent to proclaim freedom for people imprisoned by a political system of domination, freedom from all that enslaves people, even if we're unaware that we're in a kind of prison. I love what Harriet Tubman said. In my lifetime, she says, I have freed thousands of slaves and I would have freed thousands more if only they knew they were slaves. Oh man, pray and go home, right? 
Oh, that's a good word. Okay. Recovery of sight for the blind. Um, as we know from the stories in the Gospels, Jesus did miracles. He healed people. He restored their physical sight. But again, there's more than one kind of blindness. We can be spiritually blind. Scripture tells us that a key tactic of the enemy is to rob us of our sight, to restrict our vision, to keep us from seeing things as they are, be it the world or ourselves or the devil or God. We can be religiously blind. Scripture is full of people who are blinded by their own self-righteousness. More than once, Jesus refers to the Pharisees, the religious insiders of his day, as blind guides. It's the blind leading the blind. Jesus came to give the world sight. Next phrase, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the oppressed. That's a long list. The weighed down, the lonely, the forgotten, the outsiders, the disenfranchised, the disenchanted, the deconstructing, the wounded, the hurt, the misunderstood. Freedom in the name of Christ for those who are oppressed by unjust political power, by harmful religious systems, and by the many challenges of being socially marginalized. Freedom in the name of Jesus for all who, as Howard Thurman put it, stand with their backs against the wall. Desmond Tutu said, I don't preach a social gospel, I preach the gospel, period. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is concerned for the whole person. When people were hungry, Jesus didn't say, now is that political or social? He said, I feed you because the good news to a hungry person is bread. Jesus came to exercise power, not as domination or control, but as service and hospitality and practical care in a word, love. This is the heart of the good news from which it's painfully easy to get sidetracked. Yeah, that's why we always need the prophets. Then as now, always, in Isaiah 1, going back, God asks, why this frenzy of sacrifices? Don't you think I've had my fill of burnt offerings? I take zero pleasure in blood sacrifices. Might be my paraphrase. When you come before me, whoever gave you the idea of acting like this? running here and there, doing this and that, all this sheer commotion in the place provided for worship. Trample my courts, no more, God says. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the orphan. Plead for the widow. All this instead of a show as John Foreman puts it in his great song, which you gotta look up later if you haven't heard it. Instead, he says, let there be a flood of justice, an endless procession of righteous living, living. Instead, let there be a flood of justice instead of a show. I hate all your show. It's easy to get sidetracked, to get lured into thinking that these things are it. The prophets are clear, this stuff ain't it. <laughs> One commentator said, Luke, in the traditions of Isaiah, as well as the wider prophets, de-emphasizes ceremonial displays of righteousness, underscoring acts of human compassion and social justice instead. 
the primary question is not so much, what does God demand for righteousness? It is rather, who needs attention and compassion? Back in the story, and he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Love that phrase. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Oh, it's a mic drop. The response of the people to this bold moment is intriguing. Something clicked. The crowd realizes that something incredible has just taken place. They're transfixed. They can't take their eyes off him. So Jesus hands the scroll back, probably more like, leaves the reading platform. He sits down with the rest of the congregation, people still staring at him, kind of wondering what just happened. And maybe he feels compelled to say out loud what everyone's thinking silently. So he opens his mouth again, this time sitting on the floor of First Synagogue of Nazareth, among his family and friends in his hometown. And he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That in your hearing means literally in your ears. So when you tell someone, put this song, like you text someone, this song is amazing, put this in your ears today, sometime. It's amazing, it's the most thing. So this is like in your ears. Jesus is saying there's an embodiment of this prophetic promise in your midst, here and now, in your hometown. You're looking at them. This is a moment of reinterpretation. Reinterpretation. Jesus is changing the landscape, altering people's understanding of what matters most. He's at the early stages of his earthly ministry and he wastes no time disrupting folks' assumptions about what God is like and what the Messiah, this anointed one, came to do. So what might it look like to follow Christ in this? to be practicing Christians whose lives look like Jesus' first sermon, to get out on the dance floor. I think there are a lot of ways to, to begin to answer that question, but I wanna offer a bit of a pastoral word in partial response to this. When we were at the part about the oppressed, I, I kind of created a bit of a list and it's long. It includes those who have been oppressed by harmful theologies, by the spiritually traumatized, Maybe that's some of you. Over the years at Artisan, we've used the term wounded birds to describe folks who come into this community. Uh, we've tried to be a safe place for those who carry deep wounds, whatever the source may be. It's a safe place, it's to rest, to heal, to be restored. And in time, we who are wounded birds, that's an intentional we, we start to fly again, just a little, just in fits and starts, eventually we find enough of a sense of a belonging or grounding or healing or not feeling always alone to feel like we got something to give, some sort of anointing, some measure of spirit has taken root. And when enough of us are at least sort of flying, we have these seasons in the church where it feels like we might have something akin to momentum. Not quite... I don't know, it's elusive. Momentum's a hard word. But sometimes a tiny crew of us are feeling extra enlivened and energetic and want to go. And that's good. It's good. More. 
But we need to, and we need to ask how the spirit might be wanting to direct our energies and gifts. But then more wounded birds show up for myriad reasons, grief and loss due to the pandemic, deconstruction, confusion around spiritual matters, questions that used to, we have answers for, but we don't anymore. They find their way into our community one way or another. They've been invited by a friend, maybe who assures them it's not terrible. A phrase which in cynical times borders on high praise. <laughs> it's not terrible. Come to church. It's not terrible. They've moved into the city, maybe. They're not sure about church anymore, but want to give it one last try. They've heard or seen something in our online presence that seems like invitation, like hospitality or safety or life. They're here. We're here. We're present. We're waiting. We're wondering but we're hurting and bruised. It's a little beat up, or a lot beat up. They're out there, they're all over, they're you, they're me. Every one of us has places in our lives that are unfree. Every one of us needs freedom in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Ooh, what do we do about this? What do we do in the church? Some are ready to fly, anxious to get going. Others fall squarely within the frame of Luke 4, 18 and 19. Those Jesus who was anointed to be with, who he came for. Today, I simply want to say there's room for all of us. There's room for all of us. Y'all who are ready to fly, get out and listen to some stories of those who aren't. Minister to them. Be present to them. Listen to their stories. The Spirit's anointing is available to all of us. So I want to conclude by reading a poem by Drew Jackson. It's just called The Anointing. I read a Drew Jackson poem in Advent. And this guy, man, he's written a book called God Speaks Through Wounds. And it's poems based on the first eight or nine chapters of the Gospel of Luke. So this one is based on Luke 4.18. I want to invite us to hear it, if it helps to open your hands in a gesture of receptivity. Feel free. As I read it, let it find a place in your soul. And we're gonna to come to the Lord's table together. There are times when that something comes over you. You know those times. Pay attention. Let it fill you to overflowing. Allow it to move your pen to write. Open your mouth to say those words at which you tremble. Pick up that brush to paint or sweep. But whatever that something moves you to do, let the spirit take you. To shake the foundations and make new worlds. To break open new paradigms and design an unforeseen story. To love. It will always move you to love. When it comes, it will drip slowly, like oil, running down the crown of your head, leaving little droplets of sweet-smelling perfume in the dust around you. Don't wipe your brow, let it fall. The place on which you stand is holy ground. Sometimes that genius will find you in the midnight hour. 
Other times it will overtake you at the high point of the day when all eyes are on you. No matter, the time will always be right. I have learned not to be surprised that I've been chosen. We have all been chosen for love. The anointing was given at creation's dawn. The oil always 